kind of the theme we've been, we've been using in this study is the idea of following Jesus. There's lots of invitations from Jesus, especially at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, to follow. And the implication is, are you willing to go all the way to the cross, which is where we got to last week. And that's the hardest thing for folks to, to wrap their mind around is this idea of self-sacrifice, of giving themselves to something, of, of making an effort to follow Jesus all the way. And are you willing to stand there at the cross with uh, the very few folks who are left? Note, I hope you noticed if you read through chapter 27 that most of the um, uh, disciples of Christ are, are gone. They've abandoned him, they've betrayed him, they've denied him, uh, they're now in hiding, and, and they're rightfully fearing for their life. Their teacher has been put to death in one of the most uh, disgusting and inhumane ways uh, humans have ever invented to kill uh, another person. So it's not unusual that they're, that they're hiding, um, but, they've, but they've clearly um, uh, gone far away. So we've really been ask, asking that question, which is going to kind of come up again here at the, after the resurrection. Second thing, remember last week we talked about in Matthew 21.10 that after Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, he looked out over the city and the whole city was in, do you remember? Turmoil. What was the word? Anybody remember the word in Greek? Seismos. Related to our word seismic. The, um, it's kind of funny how translators deal with that. I looked at a translation today just for fun because that's what I do. And one of them said, the whole city was moved. Well, you can make that, you can do that from seismos. Yes, it was moved. But the way it was written in, in the translation was, was sort of like, oh, everyone thought it was so lovely that Jesus came to town. Everyone was moved. No, everyone was shaken up. They were in turmoil. They were in, in disarray and dismay. By the way, another aside to my aside. Um, that's one, of the, that's one of the things you've got to pay attention to with the translation you have in front of you. The New Revised Standard Version, which is, um, I've got on good word, is Jesus' favorite, um, is, is probably the more progressive, the most progressive of the, of the um, translations of the Bible that we have in English. The King James Version would be one of the most um, uh, conservative in, in, a, in a variety of ways. The new, how many of you have an NIV, a New International Version? Some of you have NIVs. I've got two of myself, including a study Bible. That would be a very evangelical, not fundamentalist, but a very, very evangelical one. Anybody have the message? Anybody reading the message as part of their study Bible? Some of you have one. Um, that's called a paraphrastic translation which I like to say just because I like to say the word paraphrastic translation. Um, in other words, uh, Eugene Peterson, who's the, uh, the translator, he takes a sentence and turns it into a paragraph. Um, you know, in the Greek, it might be one sentence, Jesus loves you, and in, in the message, it's Jesus has deep affection for you way down in his heart, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so you just, just so you know, uh, it's, it, it, there's nothing wrong with any particular version. You, well, there's some wrong with some of them, but... Um, it's just good, if you're reading the Bible, that's, that's a good thing, but it's also helpful to know where it comes from. The um, American Standard Version came out around 1908 or so, for example. Any American Standard Version uh, ones? Julie has one of those. When I found out in seminary that it was, quote, woodenly literal, woodenly literal, in other words, it was, it was really not trying to be beautiful in the way it was written. It was just trying to give you almost an exact word-for-word -word translation of the Greek. It was really helpful in my Greek translation class when we had to do it. In fact, there was one time when the professor said, Glenn, you have an ASV, don't you? Um, uh, it's Julie's. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's, anyway, it's just helpful to know that kind of stuff. So back to earthquake, seismos. Uh, I, I want you, to keep, I want you to, to keep that in mind because when we look at the text, 
there was a what. Anybody read Matthew 28? It's the same word. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Um, the, the phrase from the angel to the women is, do not be afraid, fear not. Whatever your translation says, something like that. Um, we'll get back to that again. Two, notice who are the ones that go to the tomb? Is there any men? It's women. We're going to get back to that too. By the way, I um, thought about you, Ed, when I made this note. We've, Ed and I, back row back there, have some similar backgrounds. Who were the first preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew's gospel? Women. Any, anybody says to you, a woman can't be a minister because the Bible, uh, no, apparently they can because there was an angel who, was, who said, you all go and tell. That's what an evangelist is. That's what a preacher does. We go and we tell. Um, I, I, in a church like ours with, with women clergy for, for a long time, that's, that's not an issue. All right, so let's look at the text to uh, kind of jump into some of these, some of these uh, things. Uh, Stuart, put the first um, slide up there for me. Jesus' resurrection creates a life freed from the death that grips our everyday lives. Um, what Haros is getting at here is, is death oversees us and affects us in everything we do. The story of the resurrection, the, the incident of the resurrection, the, the, our faith in the resurrection is, in Haros's idea, sets us free from the grip that um, um, death has in our, in our everyday lives. Um, and a couple Sundays ago, I mentioned in my sermon that there, I, I think I only did this at 5.30, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment, at the 5.30 version of it, was talking about death. And I said to the crowd at 5.30, name the two groups, age groups, that think the most about death. Can you name one of them, one or two of them? Anybody name one or two of them? Very young, very old. People over 65, people under 18. And so when you, if somebody says, oh, you shouldn't talk about death with kids, that'll be putting stuff in their, negative thoughts in their head. No, 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 no. You're talking two things that are already in their head. It's already stuff they're thinking about. Somebody, somebody in their class commits suicide. Uh, there's, there's, at a high school, there's 2,000 kids now thinking, if it's a big school, there's 2,000 kids now thinking about death. Um, the resurrection story is powerful because it helps us get over our, this is part of the do not be afraid note from the angel, get over our fear of death. In fact, there's a great book on heaven and hell. It looks, it looks like a cartoon and it looks like it's a little bit of a simplistic read, but it's actually theologically deep if you want to get it. It's titled Good Goats. It's got three authors. The only one I can remember for sure is Dennis Lynn, L-I-N-N. They argue that people who are most afraid of hell oftentimes become the deepest, darkest addicts and alcoholics. That that fear of hell, that fear of ultimate punishment is so overwhelming that they've got to mask that, they've got to cover up that fear with, with, with alcohol or drugs or sex or money or power or whatever, whatever it is, that, that they're afraid that there's ultimately going to be punishment. They just can't even imagine that. And so they, they turn to um, the, whatever the addictive vice might be. Now, I don't know that they've got a lot of research on that. They're quoting a Roman Catholic priest friend of theirs. Uh, it kind of comes from Roman Catholic uh, background, which is fascinating also, by the way. Um, these guys would be on the progressive side of, of, of Catholicism, um, the three authors of the book. Um, but, but that really is part of the 
Well, I would say it's central to the resurrection event is the idea that death and hell have now been uh, destroyed. Think of 2 Peter, where it says that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the souls there in Greek. It's suke. Here's another translation thing for you. If you, were, if you grew up like I did, reading the King James, memorizing and reading the King James Bible, it says in 2 Peter that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the saints there. The implication was, until Jesus came, no one got out of hell. And whoever was a saint in hell, then they got to follow Jesus out of hell. No. The word is suke. It literally means soul. It means anyone who's in hell. When Jesus died, according to Peter, he descended into hell and preached to everyone who was there. The resurrection story in the earliest church was about the defeat of hell and death and no longer any reason to be afraid of it or worry about it in, in any way uh, at, at, at all. But I, I bring all that up because I want to tell you uh, just a brief, a brief story. Um, and I've kind of hinted at this a little bit in sermons. Maybe I shared it last fall in the, um, the first Bible study I did. Um, but it's, this is why it's so personal for me, and it's really helped me um, understand some things about my, my own father's life. My father was a pastor. My father, I would list as one of the top three preachers I've ever heard in my life. When my father was uh, not um, uh, uh, high or uh, caught up in drug abuse and use, his preaching was unbelievable. He could walk into a pulpit without a single note and just preach for 30 or 35, 40 minutes, and you would be mesmerized and sucked in. I remember my sophomore year of college, he came up to the Bible college that I was attending in, in Oregon, uh, where Julie and I were in school together. He came up there and preached in chapel, and there was about 200, 250 kids in chapel that day. We went 20 minutes long because my dad preached for about 45 minutes and you could hear a pin drop. He had him laughing and crying and pulling him. He was talking about his ministry in San Francisco and the way they were working among the homeless and the poor and all this stuff. And he signed up like eight or nine summer interns that, in that sermon. And I remember going to my class. I had a teaching, I was an education major, had a teaching strategies class and Professor Warner, Sharon Warner, one of my favorite teachers in school said, wow, I know we've just been through a lot, but we do have some coursework to get through. But boy, wasn't that amazing? And Glenn, thank you for your dad being here. I tell you all that because that was my dad at his best. Um, my dad at his worst uh, was addicted to cocaine and later to, to heroin. Um, I think, now looking back when I was a little boy, he probably was addicted to speed and some other kinds of uh, pills that he would pop back in the 60s when I was just a little kid uh, growing up. I talked to a therapist about this once and he, he, he said to me, your father probably had a, a, a narcissistic wound. I don't know why it's saying here. It wasn't physical, but a narcissistic wound deep in his soul. And whatever the cause of that was, he was never, a, a narcissistic wound, if you don't deal with it, can never be filled. Um, here's how we knew my dad was clean. When he wasn't doing drugs, he was very heavy. Um, he was extremely, he died at about 480 pounds. Um, he was taller than me, six foot three, he was an inch taller than me, played college basketball, was a great athlete in high school, swam, played basketball. Um, when he was, in, you know, he was in great shape when I was a little boy, I remember him being a great athlete. Um, but he could never fill that wound. And so when he wasn't doing the drugs, then it was Twinkies and peach pie and <laughs> Julie and I, Mars bars. Julie and I still have a story of going to a, a barbecue with my brother and my dad came walking in. Here's, here's my brother and his two kids. Here's Julie and me with our two kids. My dad comes in at four o'clock. You know, we're supposed to eat at six. He starts handing out all the grandkids Mars bars and have some peach pie. And um, uh, that's a whole other story. Why, why am I telling you that? Because I, I think part of it was, is 
I, it, it's really helped me deal with a lot of stuff and, and see in my dad that there was, there was pain behind the addiction. And I, I'm saying that for anybody you know who's dealing with an addiction, anybody who you know who's dealing with alcoholism or, or whatever it might be, there's always pain behind that. And, and, and it, it took me a long time to kind of learn that about my dad. It's easier to think of when I, if, it, if, if it was one of you, uh, you know, I'm your pastor, I'll love you to death, and it's my job to help you and support you. But with your father, you know, it's kind of like, you get upset about that. I think that's, this is kind of a big deal for our whole world. You think of all the stuff we're dealing with, politically, sociologically, nationally, um, congregationally, and in a variety of churches around. Fear just infests everything we do. The word of the angel sitting on the stone is, do not be afraid. I, I, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I write that in my journal or I put that in my notes. Do not be afraid. There's also this, it also has this wonderful image. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the tomb. Some of us who are going to the Holy Land will see a place where maybe it was the tomb. If it's not the tomb, it's kind of like what the tomb was like. It's probably not more than a, a door this high off the, off, uh, this, this high with the, the top of the door. So the stone's probably not much bigger than that, but it would still be pretty large, pretty significant. It would take three or four soldiers, strong, tough guys to roll that stone. The stone's been rolled out of the way. The angel's sitting on top of the stone. And it's in the way the story's written, the way Matthew tells it, it's as though the angel saying, this ain't no big deal. This is all you got? This is what you got? You got, a, you got you only have one stone? Oh, we dealt with much worse than this. That's kind of the attitude of the story of 27 chapters of all, all this leading up, a couple chapters of all the pain of the crucifixion, and now, bam. This is it? That's all you got? Um, it's, it's just... I love the way the story, this, the story is, is written. Um, and then, again, I mentioned the word seismos. In Matthew 21, verse 10, the whole city was was moved. The whole city was, was shaken, quaken, mixed up in turmoil, upset. Some were happy, some were, weird, were freaked out, some were scared, frightened. Same word comes with Easter. Note that. Yeah, death is defeated. No longer need to be afraid of hell or any of that stuff. And that's for everybody. But in the meantime, it's kind of frightening. Let's look at the text. Put slide two up there for me. Um, yeah, just leave that one. <clears throat> After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly, there was a great seismos, an earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Again, you see that image? He just kind of sat, he or she, I guess, just kind of, it's probably he in the Bible, just sitting on it, just sitting there. How you doing? Good, it's good to see you. Got a little stone, took care of that. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. Hauerwas makes an interesting comment about this, this, that they became like dead men. They're not dead yet. Anybody seen Monty Python? <laughs> I'm not dead yet. You know the line, yeah. They're not dead yet, but they became like dead men. People who are overwhelmed by fear. People who are caught up in addiction have become like dead ones. Or people who are so caught up in their work that they work 70 or 80, 80 hours a, a week are caught up like dead men. That, that it's a beautiful, it's a, uh, it's a theologically fascinating phrase. The idea here is that, that, that it's easy to get so caught up in whatever else it is that we miss the life that God's calling us to live. 
and trust me, preachers are guilty of this as much as, if not more than anybody else. Because we work hard for Jesus, and so we just work seven days a week, and, you know, we're always constantly blah, 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 whatever. No, that's living like a dead man. Verse 5. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Uh, we'll get back into, in, into some more of that in a moment. Um, somebody has said that the, the phrase, do not be afraid or fear not, appears in the Bible 365 times. I spent a whole day once trying to count that up. I got stuck at about 200. <laughs> it's hard to figure out what exactly, whoever it was that first came up with that idea. But the idea is a pretty good one, right? You could, you could hear every day the words, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't, don't be afraid. Uh, that's, that really is, is the point. Also, there's a mixture here of fear and great joy. Later on in the text, we hear the, the, the women felt fear and great joy. Have you ever had that experience in your life? You know, first time I held our, our first baby, it was fear and great joy. Julie was thrown up in a bucket, but I was, I was scared to death. Um, you know, later on, she was pretty scared too. Uh, you know, fear and great joy. I, this little person's going to depend on me for everything. Fear and great joy. This is, they're overwhelmed. They can't believe it. But part of it, and this is also what Harawas gets at in his, in his commentary, part of the fear he thinks is Oh, he really did come back. Now what are we going to do? You know, have you ever had that feeling before? You know, on, on Sunday morning, we were taught, early Sunday morning this last Sunday, um, a couple of us were talking and chatting. It was about, what, 41 degrees and raining, and there was wind blowing. It was kind of miserable outside. And so we wondered, should we cancel the blessing of the animals? You know, that was going to happen at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Now, I don't, how many, did any of you come to that? Any of you come? We had, we had 52 people there, 25 pets. It was so cool and wonderful and great. The sun, the, the clouds parted. The sun came out. The, the rain went away. It was just a gorgeous, perfect fall, crisp afternoon. But, but there was a part in it that was like, I wouldn't mind canceling it. Yeah, we could, I could go home early. I could be at home. I could watch football. They have football on Sundays, right, still? Do they still play football on Sundays? You know, all of that. There's, there's a little bit of that, well, if he doesn't come back, well, boy, he was a great teacher and it sure is sad. Oh, he comes back. No, you got to show up. You got to, not only the blessing of the animals, but he wants to bless your life. Now what are we going to do? There's a little bit of that going on. Also, also this is at play here. Um, so they left the tomb. I'm at verse 8 quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. In the Greek, it's kairate, uh, which is related to the word kairos, which means grace. Grace to you is kind of what he's saying. And they came to him and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Second time in the text, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There, there they they will see me. Um, I I used this phrase a couple weeks ago. Fred Craddock's the one who said it. Jesus lived his, his life from, cross, or from crib to cross. But we tell the story from cross to crib. The story of the crib is sweet and nice and pleasant and wonderful, etc., except for the part where Herod comes and kills all the babies. But, you know, we, we, that, that story basically has no meaning if we don't have the cross. It's, this, it's the tragic story of a great teacher who comes and teaches and then 
his life goes away. If there's no cross, if there's no resurrection, the story itself loses, loses its, its strength. Fred also says, and this is connected to where we are now at the, at the resurrection, one of the things that Christians want to do oftentimes in our, in our, in our faith, in the, the life we try to live because of our faith, is we try to avoid the wilderness. Do you remember, do you remember on the map, let's pretend a map is up here. To my right here on the screen, that would be the wilderness. To the left over here, that would be um, the Mediterranean Sea. In the middle is the Jordan River flowing out of the Sea of Galilee, south, flowing south down to the Dead Sea. Uh, Jerusalem's just due west of there. On the other side is the wilderness, the desert, where it's where animals and beasts and, and the devil, according to Matthew, hangs out. The, uh, Fred says another thing. You can, get, you can get to Bethlehem, you can get to Jerusalem, without going through the desert, but you won't find Jesus. And what's he mean by that? Until we face our own wilderness, our own dark night of the soul, our own fear, worry, anxiety, frustration, sin, fill in the blank, it, we, won't, we won't find our way to Jesus. One of the things I hear at the season of Lent is people, are, people oftentimes want to just skip ahead to Easter. Let's just skip it. Can we just skip ahead to Easter? Because it's kind of painful to go through that whole Lenten experience of contemplation and, and petition and confession and, and all of that. But the idea is we go through that, that time in order to remind us again of how powerful the story of the cross and then ultimately uh, the resurrection. All right, go to the next slide, Stuart, slide three. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, can you go back one? I'm sorry, Stuart. Go back to the resurrection of Jesus. There it is. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be seen. We can no more see the resurrection than we can see the creation. See creation. We can only see the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. Do you understand what, he's mean, what he means by that? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Can you find in any of the four Gospels a description of the resurrection event? The, the answer is no. There's no description of, and then suddenly the Bonnie was animated and, and Jesus sat up and went, oh boy, huh, that was weird. Uh, no, there's nothing to that. All we see is post-resurrection. There, there is no, there's no, there's no, no description of the body being animated. Again, in Mel Gibson's movie, um, oh, what was it called? Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ. He has the scene where Jesus' body sits up and you see the sun shining through the hole in his hand and, you know, all this hooky-spooky stuff happens. Well, that's all right. Nothing wrong with that kind of understanding or interpretation to play around with that idea, but it's not biblical because there's no report in the Bible of the resurrection itself. It's like you're saying about creation. Did you ever, did you, have you ever seen God create? No. No, we, 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 don't, we don't see that. Although somebody, I said this once in a Bible study, and somebody said, I've been to Hawaii, and I've seen that Hawaii, that, that volcano that spills the lava out into the sea. Isn't that the creation happening there? Isn't a new, a new something being made? It's got, well, that's actually a pretty good point. But the, the theological point that Howard Wass is making, we don't see these things happening. We see the after effect of them. We weren't there on the days of creation. We, aren't, we weren't there when it was all kick-started and started by God, whenever the, whatever the, the big bang was. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus cannot be seen. We can no more see the resurrection than we can see creation. We can only see the empty tomb and the resurrected, uh, resurrected Jesus. And here's the thing. When we see the resurrected Jesus, some still don't believe. Some see and believe. Some see and go, eh, whatever. 
I remember having lunch with a friend in Kansas City who's an atheist, and he said to me, I wish I had your faith. I want your faith. I've tried to have your faith, and I can't find it. And I really honor that. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't intellectually chastising me or telling me I'm, you know, I'm less than him because he's become so smart and he's figured out that all that's a bunch of bunk. He was actually saying, I want your faith, and I can't find it. Um, blessed are those who, who, who seek God um, even when they're not sure where God, God might be. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now the truth. The truth that is Jesus is a truth that requires discipleship for it is only in being transformed what Jesus has done, has taught, and by what he has done that we can come to know the way the world is. Uh, I love this word here from, from Harawas also because it's, it's a way of saying the primary way to understand who Jesus is is to see in Jesus' life as a disciple, as one who's decided to study his teachings and, and his life that one begins to discover who Jesus is. You can't separate the two out from, from one another, in my opinion. Now, there's a professor I had, my doctor work at Claremont, who would say, uh, Mr. Miles, that's a bunch of BS, and he doesn't mean Bible study or Bible school. Um, uh, but I would argue with, with uh, Dr. Mack if he were here, and, and we'd, we'd have an interesting, boring conversation. But um, the idea is, in order to understand Jesus' teaching and his life, which you can't separate those, by the way, I'll say a bit about that in a moment. In order to understand this, one has to be willing to follow, to be a disciple of the one who's there. And the reason I say his life and his teaching can't be separated is that his life reflects the truth of what he teaches. <clears throat> Have you ever had a teacher? Well, let me tell you this story. When I was in junior high, my youth minister was John, a man named John great guy. I worshiped the feet, he, the ground he worked, walked on. He'd, he'd been a medic in, um, in uh, uh, Vietnam, never talked about his war experiences at all, um, but we all knew he'd been a medic and that we thought that was a pretty cool thing. He was married to Lynn, who was, she's the first person I ever heard use the word groovy in a conversation. I literally remember, that's one of the main things I remember about Lynn. Was she, I remember saying something to her about my baseball game, and she was like, oh, God, that's really groovy. And I just was like, wow, you're the coolest person ever. I found out when I was in college that while John was working for my father, he had a series of affairs, sexual affairs with women in the church. I, you know, I mean, here's my youth minister, my hero, this guy that I just thought was so awesome and so amazing was not. That's why, the, that's why the, the Jesus teaching and his life are so important to consider together because they're, they're two sides of the same coin. They're mirror reflection of. Now, I remember talking to one of my professors in school when I learned this about my, my youth minister in junior high, and he said, you know, the teaching that you learned from your, from your, te from your youth minister is still true. He, you also discover that he's less than human, which you're going to find as you get older. There's no one who's perfect, and then everyone's got some, something in their life that has caused them to stumble. That's a, that's a helpful part of that, that lesson. But we can't separate Jesus out from his, from his teaching. Um, go, go skip ahead for just a second to the end of the text. Uh, to, uh, yeah, to verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see what he says here? The truth is a truth that requires discipleship. What does Jesus instruct the disciples to do? Go, therefore, and make believers who believe the right way so they won't go to hell. It doesn't say that. What's it say? Go, therefore, and make disciples 
the invitation at the end of God, Matthew's gospel is to do what started at the beginning. Go out and bring in more followers. That's my job. Technically, y'all as members of this church, if you're a member of this church, that's your job, is to go and make. Not go and convince, not go and argue, not go and say you must, or you're gonna burn, or whatever, but go and make this, and invite people to follow along the way, to be fellow disciples, to be involved in this, in this this wild and crazy undertaking of life that talks about blessed are the peacemakers and, and if somebody's thirsty, give them some water. If somebody has two coats, give them one of your coats and all the rest of the stuff that's there in, in Matthew's gospel. It's about going and making disciples and, and followers. I, I really believe uh, that this is foundational uh, to, the, to, the, to the function and, and mission and vision of our church. This is kind of who we've been since 1909. We've really been a church that has, has been, what's the, what's the phrase that uh, uh, Reverend Licklider came up with? We are the church of the infinite quest. I mean, that, that's Jesus' language. We're constantly looking, following, searching. Akita is, a, is a, according to the legend, is an old Native American uh, word that means to search, seek, look, um, to be on a, on a quest together. That's really who we are in this church. And I, frankly, I think it's reflective of the teachings, especially in, in, in Matthew's gospel. All right, next slide, which should be when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's Matthew 28, 17. We're kind of uh, skipping backwards now a little, just a little bit. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but, but, but some doubted. Um, the, the churches that, let me say it in a positive way. If you've never had a doubt I'm really worried about you. If you've never woken up in the middle of the night and wondered if this is, any of this is true, I, I, I'm really concerned about you. Um, I, let me tell you, I'm, as, your, as your pastor, uh, I don't often, but I have doubts. I'm my son, Nate, who I think I've told you all is an atheist. Um, he's, he follows Eastern thought. He tries to be like Buddhist, Buddha. He tries to live his life in a way that's reflective of the teachings of, of the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Um, but he asked me point blank several years ago now, do you ever doubt your faith? Yes. Do you ever doubt that any of it's true? Yes. Well, how do you reconcile that? I don't. <laughs> Um, Frederick Buechner, Presbyterian minister, brilliant writer, he once said, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. You know, you almost can't have faith if you don't have doubt. I said this in a sermon a couple of Sundays ago, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. If we absolutely know this is totally true, that's not, there's not much faith there. That's not really faith. Not, not in the least. In fact, if you think that way, then almost there is no room for faith. Next slide, Stuart. Their doubt regarded their ability to obey and follow Jesus. I'm not so sure I agree with Harawas here, but I kind of do because this goes back to what I said about the women who were in fear and in, and, and in joy when they discovered he was alive. There's sort of that, holy cow, can I really do this? I mean, when Ginny Barney called me, um, by the way, I knew the search committee was making their final decision. Uh, as Ginny had said, it'll probably be around five o'clock your time, and uh, I don't know how long we'll meet, but after we've met, we'll call you. At five o'clock, I went to Lifetime Fitness in Leewood, Kansas, and I played basketball for an hour and a half. I just had to close, I just was so nervous and uptight about it, and then I got in the car, and there, sure enough, there was a, a voicemail, and it was Ginny Barney, 
And I could kind of tell from the tone it was good news. You know, it wasn't a, sorry, but it's not you. I could kind of tell from the tone. I called her right back, and she said, um, as the chair of the search committee at First Community Church, we'd like to offer you a call to be our senior minister. And I said yes. And that heard them, I was on speaker because then they all, the search committee all cheered. And that was all fine and great. And we talked for about 10 more minutes. And then I drove home and, and, and uh, I told Julie, I said, I got the call. They called. They, 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 they want to call me. It's, it's, I, it's me. It's like, she goes, well, when are you going to call them back? I was like, I already did. <laughs> and then I kind of went, wow. Now what are we going to do? You know, I mean, have you had that experience? You make the team, you get the call, you get the job, the girl says yes, the, 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 the one you wanted to marry is, has asked you to marry you and all that, and this is great. And now that's a little bit of what's going, that's what Hauerwas is arguing here. Their doubt is whether or not they truly have the ability to follow Jesus. Now you, all you got to do is look back to 27, 26, 25, 24, all the way back through the, when the first disciples were called to see how many times they stumble and fall. And so their own doubts are replaying. I mean, do you do that too? Do you replay the times, oh, geez, last time I had an opportunity like this, I totally fell flat on my face. Imagine if you're Peter. You know, at one point, Peter says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, A+. plus. Like a few verses later, Peter, get out of my way. Get the hell out of my way. It's literally what he says in the Greek, or actually in the Aramaic. Get thee behind me, Satan, in the King James. Peter falls flat on his face. On the night of the, of the before the crucifixion, Peter denies him three times. You can just imagine how Peter's kind of going, yeah, phew, am I sure? So I, I kind of like, like what he's talking about here. They're maybe doubting their, their ability. Go to the next slide. Um, the disciples are also the church in microcosm. I really like this. Worshiping and doubting. Doubting and worshiping. That's Tom Long who wrote the other commentary I'm using for, for my notes here tonight. That really is a microcosm of the church. Matthew's probably writing... 30 years, well, more like 40 years to 50, maybe as many as 70 years after the resurrection. So that's a long time. Most everybody who would have been alive when Jesus was alive is now dead, pretty much dead. So we're into the second, maybe even third generation of the church. And, you know, how, how many of you have seen Jesus? Um, how many of you have, have witnessed the resurrection? My, my hand's not up either. You see, I think that's who he's writing to is us. He's writing to a, church, a, a group of church folks who aren't quite sure all the time exactly what's going on. And it, I love that Matthew is this honest in the way that he tells this story. Let me tell you a quick story that I think illustrates this. Uh, there was a pastor in Atlanta whose wife was driving her van. A couple of the kids, they had two kids, a couple of them were in the car. Somebody cuts her off. Anybody ever driven in Atlanta? I mean, the speed limit is 65. If you're driving 65, you will be run over. Um, it's just crazy. We moved from Atlanta to Kansas City. I got three speeding tickets in nine months in Kansas City. Um, somebody cut her off. She rolled the van. She was killed. I think one of the other children was killed. The other one was injured severely. They had, they had their funeral on a Friday, and the preacher got up on Sunday. And he really debated whether or not. He told the congregation, I wasn't sure if I should preach. But I decided I should because somebody said to me, after his wife and, and kid were killed. The Lord only gives you what you can handle. Write that down as something you should never say to anyone ever. Okay? It's totally not in the Bible. Somebody had said to him, though, the Lord only gives you what I can handle. He said in his sermon, the reason I'm preaching today to you is I want you to know I can't handle this. And today I need my church. I need you to handle it for me. 
I mean, that's, to me, that's one of the most powerful stories of the church being the church. First of all, for that pastor that had the courage to stand up and say that and admit that. Secondly, to, to really note that sometimes, that's why, sometimes, maybe most of the time, that's why we're here. We need a little bit of hope. We need the friendship. We need the person we're sitting next to on our left or our right. We need somebody else to notice and see us and understand us and, and all the rest. That's, that's, the, that's the invitation of the, of the resurrection is to be there and be present for each other in ways that otherwise we may not be able to. I'm going to kind of run through here because I wanted to give some Q&A time. Next slide. I think it says the devil has lost. Does it say that? The devil has lost. In chapter, in chapter 4, the devil comes and tempts Jesus. All the temptation, 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 and sort of, sort of implied the devil comes back um, when? Implied. Who would you guess? Just guess. You can't get it wrong. It's okay. In the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus is like, any other way. Can I get out of this? Is there, could we, you know, I, how about a boat to Rome? I hear Rome's nice this time of year. I mean, the temptation is tremendous. It's got to be overwhelming. Then even on the cross, um, uh, Kazan Zaka's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, in his imagination, Jesus is literally on the cross dreaming of another life, of getting down off the cross and going into another life. The story of the cross and the resurrection is that the devil, the devil has, has lost. Um, slide nine. This implies some of the stuff we already talked about. Go. This is the word spoken to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaiah, and to you and me is to go. Now, that means in whatever way. It might be just to your neighbor across the street. And you don't go to your neighbor and say, um, my pastor uh, was explaining the gospel of Matthew, and I'm here to make you a disciple. Um, they're going to say, thank you very much. Um, whatever you're drinking, I like some of that at 5 o'clock. Uh, um, that, that may be what it is. That may be what it is. That's maybe what you do. But in, 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 the, in broader terms, the idea is not about going out and convincing people we're right. It's inviting them to join us um, to, to see the, the world as God wants us to see it. One more time. Uh, slide 10. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, this, this really is... Uh, the, the great promise of the Bible. This, this is what Revelation 21 concludes. Revelation 21 says, uh, in, in the new Jerusalem, the new, heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no more crying, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more gnashing of teeth. For, for behold, I will make all things new. In, in Greek, the word for all is panta. And you know what it means? It means all. <laughs> it means all things. All things, all of creation. Um, if, if you have a young person in your life, a child, a, grand, a grandchild, a neighbor, somebody who's young, who's lost a pet, the promise of the Bible, and up there a person of Christian faith, I think this is an appropriate thing to share, the promise of the Bible is that God will make all things new. Julie and I are looking forward to seeing Sally. Sally was our first dog, our little Cocker Spaniel. Sally was the greatest dog if, if, if this table, imagine this is a coffee table about that high, Julie could put, put a cheeseburger fresh off the grill, the cheese melting down the side, beautiful wheat, whole wheat bun right there on that table, and little Sally would just sit there, and she would look at it, and she would want that burger more than anything else. She wouldn't touch that burger, because she, she knew Julie would. Ugh. 
she was well trained. Now, now Sally had a puppy, had three puppies. We sold two and kept one. Her name was Poppin. Actually, her full name was Mary Poppins. If we put that cheeseburger on that table before it was off my hand, it would be in her mouth. Um, we were looking. She'd get up on the table and just eat it, be more comfortable. We were looking forward to seeing Poppin and Sally and our cat Thunder and, 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 and uh, Belle and I'm trying to think of all the others that we've had in our, in our lives. Um, uh, my little cat Willie Mays, who died when I was in the, in the fourth grade. I'm looking forward to seeing Willie Mays, my, my, my first pet ever. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to seeing the real Willie Mays, who isn't dead yet, but someday I'll see him in the, re in the resurrection too. That's the promise of the Bible is that all things, all of it's all going to be made new. Robert Fulgen points out that we carry within us the same things, the same, the same uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 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 building blocks that are in stars. We're made of stardust. Uh, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing. All right, that's the end of, of Matthew 28 and our, our study. I saved actually 11 minutes for any questions, anything you've got, anything you want, anything about Matthew, anything theologically that's bubbling around, anything you want to know, something about the Bible you've always wanted to know that I may not know, um, any question at all, anybody, anywhere, you got, we got 10 minutes. Why we blessed the animals on Sunday. For one thing, it was really fun. <laughs> I got down on my knees, and every puppy that came up to me, I kissed it and held it and blessed it and, and, and prayed over it. Um, St. Francis is the one who really kind of created this idea of, of blessing of the animals. And it, I, I would connect it personally to Revelation 21 in that all things are part of God's creation and all things deserve blessing. Uh, somewhere in the Psalms, I don't remember which one, but you know, even the mountains sing your praise, the trees are glory to you, all of creation that way. So we were really blessing them. Um, there's a beautiful prayer that we gave each person who brought their animal um, by Albert Schweitzer that essentially says, um, you know, we offer a blessing to you and our thanks to God for you and the way you enrich our lives. I also believe, especially dogs, um, that dogs just love you unconditionally. I mean, our dog Zeke, if I'm watching a baseball game and my team's losing, he'll go in the other room, the other end of our condo, and Julie will come down going, are the Giants losing? Yes. Because <laughs> she can tell from, he's, Zeke and I are so connected, he just loves us to death. Now, i got to tell you this real quick, too. Um, I said at Sunday morning at the 9 o'clock service, you know, come and bring your pet, and we'll recognize we want to recognize these ones who love us unconditionally. And Tom White, do you remember Tom White, who's a member of our church, was on our staff for a while. Um, he comes up to me and he goes, um, I wish I could bring my cats, but you're not going to let me. I went, no, you can bring your cats. He said, no, 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 you said they have to love you unconditionally. My, he goes, my cats have conditions. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, and that's, that's really why. It's really a recognition of how, what a blessing they are in our lives more than, more than anything else. It was really a fun thing. Bob, you had one. Do you ever think about doing a series on the stuff that was left out of the Bible? Oh, that would be fun. That's harder work. It's hard to do. Yeah, it's harder to do. I mean, we had to read all that stuff in seminary, like the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and a whole host. Uh, well, Q is sort of in the Bible. Um, all that, yeah, that's, that would be fun. But the class goes from 50 to about five almost <laughs> within a day. Um, I mean, I would mind, might, might do that, might do that. Uh, another thing I thought about, and in fact, send me an email if this would be something you'd be interested in. I also thought about a, a Bible study like on, on what does the Bible say about uh, heaven and hell? 
one hour long session. What does the Bible say about um, homosexuality? Hour long session. What does the Bible say about marriage? Hour long session. Take some of those topics and give you some, some biblical sense of understanding of that. What's the Bible say about abortion? That's a very short class, nothing. Um, uh, what, what's the Bible say about uh, nuclear war? Well, maybe some stuff, maybe, but nothing specific. So I've, I've thought about that too as, as, a, as a fun thing. Yes. And people would probably have to prepare for If you if you've got if you've got a um, if you got a Bible uh, a, a Bible like mine, mine has the apocryphal books, a lot of stuff that aren't in the in the Protestant Bible but are in the Roman Catholic Bible. There's some fascinating stuff in there, and it really helps you understand the full Bible. But my experience is that number of people who show up is pretty small. Yeah, yeah, right there. Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Why were there 10 virgins and one bridegroom? Um, the idea that's behind that parable is that the virgins are really the ones who are preparing. They're the bridesmaids. So it's, it's like a wedding setting, right? You, you, you get married and uh, uh, one, one person has, you know, six groomsmen and the other one has six bridesmaids. So they represent the six bridesmaids, the 10 bridesmaids. It's their job to be prepared to prepare for the bridegroom. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's an apocalyptic, does that word make sense to you? An apocalyptic uh, kind of tale in the idea that we better be ready, be, keep, stay up and stay lit. I don't think the number 10 versus one, well 10 sometimes is a number of perfection, but I don't think there's, a, there's anything numerically going on there. It's mostly about, hey, keep the lights on and be ready because Jesus could come anytime. That's kind of the idea behind that. Right back there. So what page are you on? 177 in Hauerwasch's book, right? And where, where is it in the, in the text? Christians under the illusion, this is the quote that she's questioning, asking about, created by Constantinianism, forget that we are dependent on God's continuing care of the Jews. I'd have to read the fuller context to know what he means by continuing care of the Jews. But the phrase, um, do, you know what, do you understand what he means by under the illusion created by Constantinianism? Do you understand what that means? Um, prior to Constantine, the church was not any, wasn't any religion for any state. The church was everywhere. The church was throughout the Mediterranean. And there was, there wasn't, there, there was no government that ordained it or blessed it or adopted it. Um, when Constantine, and it, and it exploded and it flourished. For example, oftentimes if a Roman soldier became a, a Christian, he'd give, up, he'd give up fighting. He might be kicked out of the army or he might be punished severely, but he'd give up fighting. He, he couldn't follow Jesus' teachings and fight. He just couldn't do it. Constantine um, saw how powerful Christianity was and the way it changed people's lives, and he made it the, the official state religion of Rome. And in and, and so doing, he then actually weakened it. And we're still dealing with some of the weaknesses of Constantinianism. For example, when soldiers would be baptized under Constantine, you know what they would do? They would step down into the river and hold their sword up while they dipped down in and somebody said the baptismal words because what? What didn't get baptized? The sword. 
the sword because they wanted it. Constantine still he was he was not stupid. He still wanted an army, and if everybody put down their sword, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have an army, and Constantine would lose his own particular power. We've been dealing with that for 1,700 years. Um, Dick Wing used to do a, used to tell a joke. Well, we don't we don't really understand the whole sword thing, but for many of us Christians, it's kind of like take your wallet. Go down into the waters, get baptized. Keep your, don't let your wallet get affected by Jesus. Um, that kind of makes the point uh, a little more, more personal. But that's, that's kind of the idea behind Constantinianism. I'd have to read more into that full text there to understand what he means by um, uh, uh, continuing care of the Jews. Uh, except I would guess, see the footnote is number two. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would guess that what he's saying is, is that... Um, uh, Jews are under God's care too, and they still count. That would be the short version, I'm guessing. Um, there was a hand back there, and I'll go this way. Yes? It's a lot harder, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's part of the deal. The question was, came from an evangelical background, uh, comes from an evangelical background, and, and me in the same way we were taught, you know, we got to go to Africa as missionaries because we got to save all those poor people from hell and, and, and help them uh, convert and follow Jesus. There's two things. One, first, I'm going to do that. Yep. Um, Julie's giving me pointers here. Um, uh, the first one is uh, this mission. Have you heard this story? I think it's... Uh, um, uh, Annie Dillard, who tells this story about a missionary who went to the, Je uh, not the Jesuits, the Inuits in um, Alaska, like around the turn of the century, 1900 or so. Have you heard this story, y'all? Do you remember this story? He goes and he preaches every day for six months. They have worship service on Sunday. He teaches. He works in the village, all this stuff. It comes to the big moment. Okay, altar call time. If you'd like to give your heart to Jesus and follow in his ways, come forward. No one comes forward except the holy man. He comes forward. The missionary says, have you come forward to give your life to Jesus? No. I have one question for you. What will happen to us if we do not follow Jesus? And the missionary says, if we do not give our hearts to Jesus, and the missionary says, well, sadly, you'll go to hell. And the holy man says, what if you had never come and we never heard this story? What would happen to us? And the priest, the missionary says, well, a loving God would never send you to hell if you did not know. And the, pre, the, the holy man asks, what does he ask? Why then why did you come? So, that's, so that's, that's the answer. The first part of the answer to the question is, uh, in, in, my, in my humble opinion, it's, it's a misguided thing to do, to say that we're going over there to save folks, because if, 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 if not knowing means you get to go to heaven, well, then leave them alone. Don't tell them anything. So what, what I, what, is it vague and weird and strange? And, and yet, absolutely. It's much harder to make a disciple than it is to get somebody to say something in an emotional moment about, I believe you're the one. Isn't this great? I give my heart to you. Um, I, I did that myself. I've experienced that a couple, three times in my life. I'm not downplaying that. But at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's fascinating to me that what he instructs us to do is go out and make followers. Invite people to this lifestyle. Invite people to be a part of this community of faith that has found something new and enriching and life-giving and, and saving, not from the myth of hell, but from, um, from being like a dead one. 
I hope that, that helps. I, I, think there's, I think it's kind of fun, too, that it's vague and not so clear. That means, that means the gospel was going to work in any generation. We just got to figure out how it works in that generation. I think there was a hand on this side. There it is. Uh, yes. So you're asking, what does that mean? Yeah, I think I think the, the um, I think I think the simple comment is is that Matthew is reflecting something in his day, not necessarily to our day, but in his day, um, there were folks within the Jewish community who believed that the story of Jesus was fake and was made up and and was totally, totally, he's that he's really dead, and his disciples made this story up. Notice, notice too, that nowhere in the New Testament is there a record of Jesus appearing to anyone but believers. If I was in, if I was in charge of Jesus, I was the PR guy, I'd be like, hello, Jesus, let's go see Pilate. <laughs> could, we go see, could we go see Caiaphas, the high priest? Could, could we just, let, let's gather all the Roman soldiers who beat you up and were vicious to you. Let's have them stand there while you tell them what's going to happen next. I think that would have been awesome, but that also would have been giving ourselves, would have been giving into a, a foolish kind of, um, try to force our faith upon them. What Jesus wants people to do is follow him because of his life and his teaching, not because he's proven that you're wrong and he's right. And so um, that's just reflective of, that comment there is just reflective of, there are people who still don't, who still don't believe, who don't believe that this is real. It's also, I think, reflective of the idea that the church formed within Judaism. Um, I get in trouble for this, so if you disagree with this, it's okay. Um, but but I, I don't believe Jesus came to create a church. I, I believe Jesus came to work within his own religion, to get people back to the roots of what they really believe and, and are, are called to practice. Um, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he said. Um, uh, I, I, so, that's, so, that's, so this might even be reflective of a conflict within the Jewish community of those who are followers of Jesus who are really, now they say he's resurrected, no, that's nonsense, we don't believe that. So it's not, a, it's not a Christians versus Jews thing, it's more of a Jewish sect versus Jewish sect thing within, and eventually the church emerges out of that, um, which takes forever to happen. Good question. Y'all have been amazing. Uh, there's nothing more exciting to me than a group of people who want to study the Bible and think theologically and wonder and dream and hope about what this word might say to us 2,000 years later. And I'm looking forward to the next time we do it. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat>